All right, so we're preaching right now a series on relationships. Last week, I preached on friendship. The week before that, I just shared a basic gospel presentation because it is our relationship to God which informs and orders all other relationships. I've said that line every week. Our relationship to God informs and orders all other relationships. Last week, we thought about how God making us friends informs our understanding of friendship. We saw that friendship is found. It's found where two people say, oh, you too. Like, you're going there too. You care about that too. You love that too. Friendship is forged through sacrificial love and presence and constancy. And friendship is formative. The scriptures teach that our friends shape us. Our friends change us. It's imperative then that we are friends who point others to Jesus and we seek out friends who point us to Jesus. I challenged us to be people who point others to Jesus to serve our church by committing ourselves to being friends and making friends. This week is part one of a two-week exploration of marriage. Marriage itself is a sort of spiritual friendship, but it's a unique one. It's not merely a friendship. It is something deeper. This week, we will think about what marriage is. What should married couples understand their marriage to be? What should those pursuing marriage understand it to be? And what should any Christian, striving for a biblical understanding of all of life, think about the institution of marriage? Now, next week, you don't want to miss that sermon. Frankly, I think it's a little better than this one. We'll think more about what marriage does. Why is marriage? Put another way, what is marriage for? A question I'm not sure we often ask. Put more clearly, what is marriage for? I'm particularly excited to consider that together. If this morning considers the meaning of marriage, next week we will consider the mission of marriage. I do think next week you'll leave with a list of immediately helpful things, but they won't really mean anything if you don't catch the foundation we lay this week. Now, I want to sort of share two quick points of order, two quick caveats, two pieces of contextualization before I preach for the first time ever explicitly on the topic of marriage. First, I am very aware that not everyone is married. For some of you, marriage is a great joy. For others, marriage is a real struggle. For even still others, marriage has just simply not worked out at some point in your life, and you may tense up at the very thought of even exploring it for two weeks. Well, whoever you are and wherever you've been, I am glad you're here. I have prayerfully considered the vast array of experiences that may be in the room this morning and next week. I'm glad you're here, you're safe here, and the Word of God has good news for all of us. A second thing I want to clarify is that I am a fellow pilgrim in the way of the kingdom. Now, this is always true, but especially so when I'm teaching on a particular topic. I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm a young guy in the room who's been married for five years. I humbly acknowledge that many couples in the room have been married for way longer than I, and I do hope that you will seek out such couples and learn from such couples. It's a goal of Holly's and mine to have a not perfect relationship, as that's impossible, but to have a sincerely, genuinely healthy one an authentically Christian marriage that can be a model for others in our fellowship. So if you have any questions about our credibility, my credibility, 
ask Holly about her experience being married to me, and maybe she'll tell you that she's still standing. To understand marriage, I think we need to understand two key words, covenant and gospel. Covenant and gospel. Here's our main idea this morning if you're taking notes. Marriage is a covenant relationship that reflects and refers to the gospel. Marriage is a covenant relationship that reflects and refers to the gospel. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 33 will be the text for both this week and next week. This week, I'm going to read the whole text, introduce it as an overview, and we're just going to consider the last three verses. Next week, in the mission of marriage, we're going to get up into the meat of the text and really consider a lot of this language that is uh, intriguing and that is something we need to, to grasp. So let's begin in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their Husbands. Now, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may notice, depending on your Bible, that I, I did not use the traditional subdivisions of the chapter because I don't know how helpful they are here. I think the apostles' sustained line of argument is really important to see. Up in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but instead... Be filled with the Spirit. So there are, are, are two basic commands introducing us here. The first is to walk wisely, and the second is to be filled with the Spirit. Those are overarching commands for everything that follows. That what Paul is giving us is the way of wisdom, and he's calling us to walk the way of wisdom in the Spirit. 
Not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Filled with the spirit, then address one another with joy, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Give thanks to God and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, after Paul commands us to submit to one another mutually out of our reverence for Christ, he then orders that submission in a family, in a marriage. The word submit appears in verse 21 as a command for all of us, then is picked back up in verse 22 where the apostle Paul addresses specifically wives and husbands. What comes next, we must keep in mind, rises out of what has just been said. Be filled with the Spirit. Be thankful in everything. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Reverence to Christ and submission to one another frames the apostles' direct teaching on marriage. And you will all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in this way. Our submission to Christ orders our relationships with others. That's a key point for the Christian. Our submission to Christ orders our relationships with others. The apostle will go on to order both a wife's submission to her husband and a husband's sacrificial love for his wife. One does not exist without the other in the mind of the apostle. In so doing, Paul is demonstrating the uniqueness and peculiarity of the marriage covenant. Because marriage, unlike any other sort of covenant, uniquely reflects and refers to the gospel. Marriage, unlike any other sort of covenant, uniquely reflects and refers to the gospel. This morning, we'll just focus on verses 31, 32, and 33. Next week, we'll focus on the preceding verses. The rest of our morning, we'll just consider two words, covenant and gospel. When we say that marriage is a covenant, what do we mean? When we say that marriage is a covenant that reflects and refers to the gospel, what do we mean? Let's first consider this word covenant. I think there are two fundamental ways one can approach the marriage relationship, transactionally or covenantally. So you can approach marriage as a transaction, or I think you can approach marriage as a covenant. The transactional approach is dominant in our day, but it's not new to our day. We see marriage as transaction in both traditional and contemporary settings. Very briefly, you've read this in history books a long, long time ago, probably. So-and-so married so-and-so for their family's interests. Marriage is a way for families to ensure their lineage, to climb the social ladder in a day with limited social mobility. Marriage would be a sort of currency for social status. How many old books and old films are about uh, somebody from a lower class wanting to marry someone from a higher class and the family from the upper class being absolutely mortified at the thought. We see this though in our world today. So our culture doesn't value the family unit or the family honor, the family name as much anymore as it did. It, it more so values the individual. We tend to marry, at least in the popular level of our culture, uh, we tend to marry for an individual's fulfillment. 
for an individual's romantic fulfillment, for an individual's happiness. We marry as long as sort of your career and my career are both not hampered by the reality of our marriage. Marriage then isn't often subservient to the family in our culture. Marriage is much more so subservient to the needs and wants of an individual. The marriage certificate in this framework is something like a contract. You will meet my needs and I, I will meet your needs. But if there comes a day when you don't fulfill my romantic desires, then the contract has been breached and I am out. If there comes a day when I feel like I can no longer meet your needs, it's not you, it's me, <laughs> then I'm out. Like, no one's explicitly taught this. This isn't the language that someone who's teaching you about marriage, whether a parent, a mentor, a grandparent, a friend, no one's going to say, like, marriage is a contract that's all about you, and so as long as you get what you want out of it, it's good. No one's going to, like, sit you down at any point in your life and give you that talk. But it's like, the, it's like the, the air that we breathe. In a consumeristic culture, this is normal to us. It's how we approach everything. Every contract is breakable. Thinking even less formally, like if you find a vendor for your needs that can provide a satisfactory product for less than what you currently pay for that product, it's just as good, then it's in your best interest to not consume the product you were consuming and to consume this new product because it's better suited for you. Now that's itself not wrong. I mean, if you're talking about internet providers and cable packages, right? But it's not a helpful way to approach marriage. It's a bad set of assumptions to bring into marriage because the scriptures don't present marriage as sort of a contract between two people for their individual fulfillment. The scriptures present marriage as something else altogether. The scriptures present marriage as a covenant between both two people and God. So here's how we can bring that down. Like, it's less transactional. I'll do X and you'll do Y. It's, it's more so I promise to stay no matter what. Let's look in verse 31. Paul here seamlessly quotes pretty much verbatim from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, you'll notice that the apostle has already included some teaching on marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, sacrifice for your wives. Care for hers as you would care for your own body. And here we're getting to the end, and Paul, the apostle, hearkens back to Genesis chapter 2. When he quotes Genesis, he is reinforcing his argument with this idea of a covenant, a binding permanent relationship. A covenant, I think very simply, we could say is a relationship formed by a promise, a relationship formed by a promise. Just as Adam and Eve become one flesh in the Garden of Eden, the word of the Lord says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Paul wants the Ephesians and the rest of us to know that this is what happens in marriage. In this leaving and holding fast 
two are becoming one. Paul is inviting us to see that marriage as a covenant has both horizontal and vertical dimensions. Marriage as a covenant has both horizontal and vertical dimensions. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, a man is told his spouse is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And same in Ezekiel 16. Proverbs 2 describes a wayward wife who has, quote, left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. The horizontal dimension is pretty clear. Two people cleaving to one another. But the scriptures also teach a vertical dimension to the marriage vows. We actually see this intuitively in Christian weddings, though we might not like register it. So when you do a wedding, when I do a wedding, when a minister does a wedding, uh, you've got, you got a, a man and a woman and they're going to marry each other and the minister will ask some questions. Do you promise to, to love this person? Do you promise to cherish this person, et cetera, et cetera? And they say, I do, right? And then when they're saying I do in many ceremonies, not all because marriages are like you know, Etsy now, but it, in many, many marriages, they're, they're not looking at each other at this point. They're looking at the minister or they're looking sort of out at the congregation, usually looking at the minister. And so when, they ask, when I'm asking the husband and when I'm asking the wife these questions, they're not looking necessarily at the other person to answer the question. They're actually saying, I do to someone else. There's a whole dimension of their marriage here that's not just between them. They're, they're, they're making a promise before God. And the minister is, through the word of God, sort of representing God in that process. They're making a vow not with the minister, but before God. And then from that, they go on then to exchange vows with one another. And so a husband and wife make a covenant with God, and then before God, they make a covenant with one another. Why are we spending time on this? Because I think our default way of viewing marriage is as contract, and the way the Bible presents marriage to us is as covenant. That this covenant before God and with one another undergirds our relationship. That this covenant with God sort of is the foundation for the covenant we make with one another when the covenant we make with one another is particularly strained. A husband and wife make a covenant with God and before God with one another. What then is a covenant, Tim Keller asks. I'm going to quote Keller a lot. In, in many ways, the whole shape of this series, is uh, these two weeks, is shaped by him. I haven't read one of his books fully in a long time, but I think his marriage book is profoundly helpful. It's what we use here for premarital counseling. And a word on premarital counseling, by the way. It, marriage, count, marriage isn't something you just prepare for for a few months before you do it. Marriage is something you're actively preparing for while you're married, too. Like, I, I like to invite people all the time to say, like, the best time to, like, tackle problems is when you, you don't really even know about them. And so, pastorally, like, I'm happy to walk through the kind of stuff we do in premarital counseling in marital counseling. Uh, that's, that's available to you. Email us anytime, mason at resurrectionwv.com, and we would love to serve you in that way. So, Keller asks, what then is a covenant? It creates a, a particular kind of bond that is disappearing in our society. It is a relationship far more intimate and personal than a merely legal business relationship. Yeah, at the same time, like listen, like it's deeper, yeah, it's commitment, and that, that stuff can sound scary. But here's what we need to see. At the same time, it's far more durable, binding, and unconditional than a relationship based on feeling or affection. A covenant relationship 
is a stunning blend of law and love. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. It is something like the gospel. That second word we'll consider. Look in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The two becoming one is a profound mystery. Let that sit for just a moment. Don't rush, rush past those words, mystery and profound. The apostle wants us to see that this is heavy stuff, man. It is deep. But just because something is deep does not mean it's incomprehensible. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of these wonderful things is for the people of God. It's for all of us. So we don't just throw our hands up and say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's mysterious, it's profound, I'm a mere simple person, I can't know anything about this. No, the apostle is letting us in on the mystery. That's a motif in his writings, specifically to Ephesus. God is letting us in on that which has been hidden for the ages elsewhere in the book. He says that the saints of old would long to see what you now see. They would long to know what you now know. This has been a great mystery hidden in the mind of God that marriage was always pointing to Jesus. Marriage was always pointing to Jesus. In the Garden of Eden, at that first marriage ceremony as the scriptures presented, officiated by the Lord God himself, God was embedding into the closest human relationship a picture of the gospel. God was embedding into the closest human relationship a picture of the gospel. Marriage and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, teach us about the other. The gospel teaches us about marriage, and marriage teaches us about the gospel. How does the gospel teach us about marriage? There's one fundamental way that in our limited time we could say this morning, the gospel teaches us what love is and shows us what love looks like. In the same way that we approach marriage, not as a blank slate, we approach marriage with a set of assumptions. And I've argued that, that many of those assumptions are shaped by our consumeristic culture. Many of those assumptions are, are shaped by the way we engage with other people the way we engage with our friends, the way we engage with uh, organizations, our employers, our churches, that there's sort of an individual's needs and then their needs, and then if those two are lined up, then we're good, and if those two diverge, then we're not good. And so this covenantal relationship, these, uh, a relationship formed by promise of mutuality, like, that is kind of foreign to us. And so in other words, that we have, to, we have to intentionally, all of us, sort of go to the Bible and allow the Bible, the Word of God, the Scriptures, to, to shape our presuppositions about what marriage is. In the same way that has to happen with love. Because we don't just, when we say the word love, we all don't, don't think of the exact same thing. And so what has to happen is, if we're going to be Christians who think Christianly and live Christianly and act Christianly, then our operating definition of love can't just be shaped by sentimentalism or what I want to be true, what I think is true. It can't just be shaped by what the culture tells me love is. That, that what has to shape our understanding of love is the revelation of God. We start there. 
And so I think that the gospel teaches us what love is and what love looks like. So it is inevitable that I am and you are, we're getting our definition of love from a myriad of sources. So if your definition of love has no room for sacrifice, no room for service, no room for making and keeping promises, then your definition of love is not being shaped by the scriptures. What does the gospel teach us about love? Well, quite simply, love sacrifices. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. In love, he leaves his father in heaven in pursuit of his bride. He pays the bride price with his life. He pursues the church unto death. He comes not to take but to give. He comes not to fulfill his own wishes in his humanity, but to fulfill the divine will in his sacrifice for sinners. 1 John 3.16. And John 3.16 is a good verse to memorize. 1 John 3.16 is a good verse to memorize. In fact, the book of 1 John itself is very good to memorize. I'm all on the scripture memorization kick right now. So I was out in Kansas City for my doctoral seminar, and uh, my professor was just a man that you could tell has been with Jesus. I mean, he has, he's a Romanian guy who has memorized like chunks of the New Testament. And hearing him, he took a whole afternoon, like we're there to do all this really technical work. And he takes a whole afternoon and he's like, we need to like recommit to memorizing the scriptures. So my challenge would be don't just memorize 1 John 3.16, memorize 1 John. I mean, we can, we can do, it, do it. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Let me read that again. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, do not let us love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Little children, John says, don't let us just talk about love. Don't let us love in theory. You cannot love someone in theory. You can only love them in truth and deed. We will talk a lot next week more practically about this idea. It is so crucial to learn to give love the way that your spouse receives love. It is so crucial to learn to give love the way that your spouse receives love. So Holly and I, receive love and, and give love in different ways. And so if I try to sort of show Holly love in the way that I want to receive love, then it might not land the way that I want it to land. She might not receive it the way. So my job is to sacrificially love her, figure out how she will receive it, give it to her in that way. This is a phenomenon that Keller calls love currency. Uh, if you, you know, have been familiar with pop Christian writings in the last 20 years, there's this language of uh, love languages that in many ways is a similar idea. Related to that idea that love sacrifices is that love acts. We just saw it in that passage. Let's go to verse 33 in our text this morning. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In many ways, verse 33 is a summary of everything the apostles just said. So as we're laying foundations this week, foundations of covenant and gospel, it's helpful to look here in a succinct way where the apostle says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul here circles back on this language of sacrifice and submission. Here's what I want us to see here though. You cannot command a feeling. 
You cannot command a feeling. I cannot make you feel a certain way. You cannot make me feel a certain way. He doesn't say, if you feel like loving your wife, loving her. If you're having a good day, love your wife. If it's not going to inconvenience you too much, love your wife. Now, love certainly feels. It's a feeling, sure, but in the immortal words of Boston, it is more than a feeling. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they have made a big mistake and are entitled to change. Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. And this is where we're landing the plane. Here is the genius of Christian marriage. Covenantal love and romantic love need each other. Covenantal love and romantic love need each other. If you can't command a feeling, and if we take from other portions of Scripture where we see very clearly that, that to love someone is not just to feel a way towards them, even if you feel that deeply, but it is to act in truth and in deed. Then love acts. The covenant makes you love when you don't feel like it. And I think the actions of love will lead you to feeling like it. The covenant makes you love when you don't feel like it, and the actions of love will lead you to feeling it. Lewis continues that quote from Mere Christianity. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. It is simply no good just trying to keep a thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follows and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. Love acts. If your marriage this morning is not what you want it to be, ask yourself this. Will I be the one to act in love when I don't feel love? Will I be the one to act in love when I don't feel love? We'll see that next week in Christian marriage, functioning with two people as God has ordained it to function, it, it really only takes one person to get the train back on the tracks. You're gonna say, I'm gonna commit to acting in love. I'm gonna commit to sacrifice. I'm gonna commit to serving and then see how the power of God changes us. Now, I do want to make a caveat here and say that I am preaching a normative, uh, this is a two-week, this is not a four-week, five-week, six-week series on marriage. So I'm not getting into all sorts of very important things, topics like when divorce is permissible. In fact, what I think Jesus is doing uh, with the, the Pharisees is I think he is actually reminding them of this idea of covenant over contract because I think that what's happening is skillful interpreters of the law have, have found, are trying to find loopholes in a contractual sense. Nothing is new under the sun whereby they can find a loophole and they can divorce their wife for that. And Jesus is reminding them that, no, no, this is a covenant. And so when Jesus is speaking about 
permissible grounds for divorce, he's using covenantal language. That there's a difference in breaking contract individually, and then there's a difference in breaking covenant more deeply. We see that language in Israel, in the Old Testament. And so if we're going into divorce remarriage, we'll go there. If you want to uh, talk together about that, we'll, we'll talk about that. So I, I'm not speaking there about uh, all of these sorts of things. I'm not speaking about abandonment, where you're like, listen, I sacrificed everything, and he or she, they just left anyways. Like, I'm not saying it's your fault, so don't ever hear me say something like that. That what we're doing this week and next week is sort of laying a biblical theological foundation f- to move forward, and then there's all sorts of things we can consider elsewhere that w- we simply don't have time to consider. But if you're, there's things on your heart, I encourage you to continue this conversation um, just pastorally, and I would love to, to have that. Love acts and grows into something lasting, beautiful, resilient, rich, deep, and steadfast. Friends, this is the kind of love I aspire to in my marriage. This is the kind of love I aspire to see in the marriages in our churches. Something that is beautiful, lasting, resilient, tough, rich, deep, and steadfast. And as we experience this kind of love, we learn more about the heart of God for us. Marriage teaches us about the gospel. Worship team, come on up. So we've seen a little bit about how uh, the gospel teaches us about marriage. We learn that love sacrifices and, and love acts. And that this idea of covenant and emotion, they're not, they're not opposed. Like they need each other. Like it's in keeping covenant through action that the feelings of love are fulfilled and multiply. But marriage teaches us about the gospel. If you're not married, you will see the worst in your spouse. And your spouse will see the worst in you. You simply cannot hide who you really are from someone you spend your life with. You can try, and maybe for a while you can do that. But who you really are always catches up with you. Perhaps you've just heard what I said about love and active service, and you've thought, I, I just, I, I, I cannot do that. Like, our modern minds think that is so cold. Like, you know, that is so dry. Like, I, I can't love this person in action if I don't feel it. I love the idea, Mason, but I, I, object, to, I object to it. I would say that in, in the pain of our marriage, we, we learn to see the beauty of the gospel. And in our struggle to love one who is not lovely, we realize the incredible love of God. The love of God that loved us when we were not lovely. I'm gonna close with a quote because I think Keller captures this beautifully in Meaning of Marriage. Many people hear these sorts of things and say, I'm sorry, I just cannot give love if I don't feel it. I, I can't fake it like that. It's too mechanical for me. I understand that reaction, but Paul doesn't simply call us to naked action. He commands us to think as we act. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This means we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he did not think, I am giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing.
He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but he loved us to make us lovely. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's on my mind as I fulfill the actions of love. Speak to your heart. Don't just listen to it. And fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. Marriage is possible because Jesus stayed. In Jesus, we know the love of God that surpasses understanding. In Jesus, we know the love of God that we can never lose and can never be taken from us. In Jesus, we know the love of God that is not conditioned upon our performance, our emotions, or our attitude. In Jesus, we know the love of God that nothing, neither height nor depth, nor things present nor things to come, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor principalities in heaven and on earth can take from us the love of God because Jesus stayed. What is marriage? Week one of two-week exploration of marriage. Marriage is a covenant that reflects and refers to the gospel. It's with this biblical understanding of what it is we move next week to what it's for. Why marriage? A marriage that's going nowhere is really not the biblical ideal. I pray together with this meaning of marriage next week, we will together understand more deeply the mission of marriage. So if you're here this morning, whatever your experience with marriage, I pray that this word of the Lord would be a north star, a plumb line for us as we walk the way of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, uh, you have given us a gift in marriage, a covenantal relationship uh, between a man and a woman that in a unique and peculiar way reflects the gospel. Father, this morning we are just moved to worship as we look back on the very first pages of Holy Scripture and we see on those pages your sovereignty and your goodness and your foreknowledge of all things. That while you bring Adam and Eve together, you know that this is but a picture. It is but a type of another reality, a deeper reality, a greater reality. That Jesus, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, would come to earth and attach himself to the church, his bride. In marriage, you're pointing us to the love you have for us. And in the experience of marriage, Lord, you point us to that love over and over again. Father, help us be a people who love deeply, who love sincerely, who love with fierce emotion. 
that rises from a rock solid commitment. Help us be people who understand this meaning of marriage and that live out, Father, submission and sacrifice and all the sorts of things that your word has that we'll consider next week. Help us live that out from this bedrock understanding of covenant and gospel. For those who aspire to marriage in our congregation, I pray that this aspiration would be shaped by your word. For those who are married, I pray that your word would shape our understanding of that reality. And I pray that our church would itself be a picture of the gospel to a watching world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.